Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. Amen, amen. Well, we just wrapped up a series on uh, people of his presence, presence people. How many of you enjoyed that series? And uh, just a disclaimer, every sermon I ever will preach the rest of my life will be under that series, that umbrella of the presence of Jesus. So it's gonna come out in different ways, but it will always be about the presence of Jesus in my life. And this morning, I really felt really felt led from the Lord to talk about is the topic of this. This is the title, Living for the Throne Room, or, or another way of saying it, Living with the Throne Room in Mind, okay? Living with the Throne Room in Mind. And uh, I consider myself what many would call an old soul. Um, growing up, whenever I was in high school, I, I, I hung out at my grandma's house on Friday nights eating chicken fried steak and hanging out there while everybody else was partying and going to football games. I was hanging out with, with my grandparents. And, but, but some of my, my most favorite, favorite books to read that have marked my life have been from God's generals that he used maybe 100, 200 years ago that he marked. Um, people like uh, Maria Woodworth Edder, Sister Amy McPherson, Catherine Kuhlman, just, I call these people some of God's best friends he's had on the earth. And, and I, love, I love hearing their sermon, their messages, and all of these generals, they all share one common theme, one common centrality to their messages, and it is this. How do I want to stand before Jesus in the throne? In other words, how will Jesus evaluate my life when I stand in the throne room? And this is a topic that's really not popular today in most, most churches. It's not really taught about. It is not an emphasized message. But I wanna suggest as we get closer and closer to the coming of Jesus, this message, this theme will go from being peripheral and it, would, it will rise to the top to being the singular message, the most emphasized message in the body of Christ in these last days. It will happen, I promise you. It, why? In seasons of urgency, whenever urgency happens, it, it really changes our priorities. So a lot of the things of like life application and all that good stuff, it's not gonna matter so much anymore in light of how do I want to face Jesus in the end? I said, uh, I said this, I think, a few weeks ago, but it's like you take our iPhone, you, you see all the, I mean, the hundreds of millions of things this iPhone can do, the apps, everything. But whenever urgency hits and you have an emergency, it gets really simple of the use of this iPhone. It's to make a phone call. <laughs> and and I, I really believe the Lord is simplifying his bride today. Out of all the activities, out of all the things he's simplifying us and saying, hey, all those are nothing if you don't have me, if you don't have a heart that burns in the place of prayer, worship, and adoration. So uh, living from the throne room. And like I said, this is not a very emphasized message, but it will be. 
And just a, just a quick disclaimer, I wanna say, anytime uh, any type of revelation or message is preached, there's always an opportunity for the pendulum to swing too far one way. And so what I am not saying is when we're living for the throne room, we forget about our life here on earth. It's like a lot of times this message gets, gets preached and it's like, oh, I'm living for heaven. I don't need a 401k. I don't need retirement. I don't need anyone, anything like that. And that's just the spirit of stupid. Just don't do that. that <laughs> so that's just a disclaimer. It's like God wants us to build wealth and leave an inheritance for the next generation. Uh, and so while, while we need to build wealth, have a retirement, have all that, that stuff does not have us. We are living for a different world. We're living for a different age. We're living for a different realm. If you think about it, our lives here on earth are really just... 80 to 90 years, if you're lucky, 80 to 90 years on the front end of eternity. <laughs> so just picture the, your, the entire scope of your existence from the day you were born up until you get to heaven and we stay there forever. Your life here on earth is a small minuscule percentage of what we'll be doing in heaven. 80 to 90 years on the front end of eternity. That is our home. That is where we're going. That, that, that is what we are born for. And, you know, this morning, I, I, I could give so much, I could give life application and all that, but I just have this burden that when we breathe our last breath, the last thing on our mind will be life application. And the first thing on our mind will be, where is the security of my soul? Uh, is who am I about to meet right now? The last thing will be life application. The first thing will be, how am I gonna stand before Jesus in the throne room? And when we're talking about this, please know we, are we will be standing before a perfect loving father, okay? A lot of people talk about the throne room, the judgment seats, like, oh, this is the freakiest thing ever. Let's not talk about it. No, we are standing before a perfect loving father with Jesus as our advocate. The blood of Jesus is our advocate when we stand before him. And, uh, you know, to many, this, this sounds kind of like, that's old school, radical preaching. And really the things that we are calling radical and old school is really just the normal Christian life as shown to us in the Bible. It's like Jesus never lowered the standard from what's in this book. We have lowered the standard. And I just wanna say, he will not adjust to our standard. We must come under the lordship of his standard. He's not gonna to adjust to us. We must adjust to him. Bill Johnson, I love this. He, he always says, many people have very little interest in heaven because they have so little invested there. Let's say that again. Many people have little interest in heaven because they have so little invested there. And I believe this is an hour, the Lord is really bringing this topic to the surface saying it's time to invest in eternity. It's time to invest in eternity where moth doesn't cause your life to decay, where we're, it, doesn't, it doesn't decay. Invest in eternity. And so how many of you were here when we taught on the book of Revelation? So wasn't that just such an amazing series? Hopefully we can do it again sometime, but um, that, that series, you know, every preacher would hope that their sermons transform people. But for me, when I was just studying, this sermon series was transforming my heart more than any other series I've, I've taught on. 
And, and it really sobered me and awakened me to the reality that this isn't my home, that life is not going to last forever. And it really uh, sobered me to this sobriety that we were made to, for another realm. And that's really why death is so painful to, to us. I mean, death in itself is painful because we're, we're, you know, someone we love is lost. But more than that, death is so painful because we were never made to die in the first place. We can't fathom death because we were made on this earth with the intention that we would never die, okay? So, so that, that is just the mindset I wanna talk about today. And, you know, the most mind-blowing thing is that me and you, we don't have to guess or try to figure out what Jesus calls great or successful when we stand before the throne room. See, what, what kind of father would that be if we know there's a day coming, we're gonna stand in eternity and he doesn't tell us what he's looking for. So Jesus has spelled out for us exactly in minute detail what he calls great. And the thing is what Jesus calls great, what heaven calls great and it's successful is very opposite than what we call great and successful on the earth. And so we need to allow the Lord to really purge our minds and our definitions and allow him to define success. He needs to define what is influence. And you know, in school, I always loved history class more than any other class. Math class, you had to figure out formulas, just wasn't fun to me. And uh, you know, science, kind of the same thing. English was a headache too, because you had to analyze all this literature, but history, all you had to do was really memorize facts that had happened and you should pretty much ace the test, right? <laughs> Hopefully, I I've seen many people not do that. <laughs> but I remember one class I was taking when I was in college and uh, my, my dad had taken this class before I took it. And he said, anytime the professor says these words, you might wanna write this down, always take note and write that down because that's gonna be on the test. So sure enough, I, I go into the class and uh, I'm sitting in the lecture and he's just going over the chapters and all that. And sure enough, you might wanna write this down. And me, immediately, I'm writing this down, but I'm shocked at the people around me who are just staring without a notebook or a pen, not doing anything. And then finally, the day of the test comes, and I'm like, how could anybody fail this class? He's given you exactly what's gonna be on the exam. And I was shocked at how many people failed the test. And, and the same thing is happening here. Jesus is giving us the answers to the test. It's not cryptic. He doesn't speak to us like that. He's a good father, but how many will be sober in your mind and sober to say, I want to apply that to my life right now? How many of us will, will say yes? It's amazing. We don't have to guess or figure out what, how the Lord will evaluate our lives. And so I wanna really define what Jesus is looking for, define his greatness. And so Matthew 5, 17, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. I'm gonna be reading uh, right here, verse 17. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all these things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so 
will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it's, it's important to note here, Jesus is really classifying two groups of people. He's classifying those who are least and those who are great. And so many people read this and think, oh, the least are the unsaved and the great are the saved. Uh, that, that is not a true interpretation. The least and the great, this is all people who will be saved in the age to come. It isn't a thing of like, um, I'm not saved or, or I am saved. All these people he's talking about right here specifically are all under the umbrella of salvation. So what Jesus is saying is when we get to heaven, there will be this massive award ceremony where he will reward us. He will give us authority, realms of influence, nations to govern, regions to govern based on how we love him here on earth, based on our life choices here on earth. So he's saying in the age to come, there will be least and there will be great. And it isn't a thing of, oh no, am I gonna be least or am I gonna be great? That, that he's not wanting you to, to have anxiety or anxiousness. I'm just wanting to give this to you to see that is available right there. This is available, a life God calls great. And so I wanna take the next few minutes and just define what Jesus calls, calls great. But contrary to popular belief, we're not gonna be in heaven wearing halos, sitting on clouds, playing harps all day. That's <laughs> uh, just not gonna happen. We're gonna be, we're gonna be doing stuff, okay? Yeah. We're gonna be doing stuff. <laughs> and you know, that is one of the disservices the hyper grace movement really did to people is just by saying, hey, all you need is salvation and that's it. And it's like, yes, that's the first step. That's the front door, but don't stop there. You have an entire lifetime to build gold in heaven with Jesus. And you might be saying like, oh, if I'm already saved, then why does it matter if I'm least or great or get any rewards? And it's like, I'm pretty sure on that day when Jesus is handing out nations to govern, you're going to care you are going to care. It will matter that day. When we taught about Revelation, I went through, uh, I was talking about eternal rewards. I wanna go ahead and put this slide up. So in the book of Revelation, there are uh, 22 eternal rewards that, that is laid out for us. So these are specific rewards. Um, some of them are, are kind of metaphorical and I don't really have an interpretation for, probably won't have an interpretation for it until we get to heaven. But these are 22 eternal rewards, all 22 that are listed in the book of Revelation. I know it's kind of hard to read some of those, but some of these, what they say, to receive the crown of life, to not be hurt by the second death. So this day when we get to heaven, Jesus will be handing out rewards based on how you loved him when no one saw it on the earth. So one of these is to wear white robes. And what, what's interesting is here on this earth, our passion for God, our love for God is hidden. We can't see it. We can kind of see people who are passionate, but we can't tangibly see people's heart and their passion for God. That won't be the case in heaven. In heaven, God will clothe you externally with how you loved him internally. <laughs> He will clothe you with robes of white. Although it's hidden and unseen here in heaven, in eternity, it will be outwardly expressed and we will wear our worship pretty much in heaven, robes of white. These are the rewards. 
These are the rewards. So God, I want everybody to hear me. God loves all of his children the same, but he favors us very differently. So imagine parents, uh, you know, a father could have two sons and one son, uh, he's not perfect, but he makes mostly good choices. His heart every day is to spend time with his, his father, to love him. They're, they're, they're on this level of love and a connection. And it's not about, Father, what can you do to, for me? It's not about, can I use your credit card today? It's about, what can I give to you? Let's have this one-on-one this -on -one relationship. He's not perfect, but he does the best he can. Then you have this other son. This, this son right here, the father is always communicating him through the lens of patience and discipline. He's just not making really good choices, just kind of going back and forth. He's always exercising grace to try to get his heart right. Both sons, the bad one and the not bad one, <laughs> they are just as much sons, no matter what they do. They are just as much in the father's family, no matter what they do, no matter they, their behavior. They are just as much loved, no matter what they do. However, the difference is the depth of relationship. One son, because of his life choices, has a deeper place in the father's heart, a deeper access to the father's presence than the other one does. The thing is, it is available to both sons, but only one said yes to it. In the same way, all of us have this availability to know the Lord deeply, to have a deep, passionate relationship, but very few will have a heart posture that actually does what it takes to get the more of God. Just like Jesus said, their lips say they love me, but their hearts are far from me. I believe the Lord is just inviting me personally in this season to a place where my behavior begins matching my words. Where it's like, you say I'm your all, but am I? <laughs> you say I'm your everything, but am I? When he tests our motives. See, motive is so, so significant to loving Jesus. I've been confronted with things recently in my heart when I'm going to be with the Lord, the Lord's confronting me. Are you loving me and seeking me so you can preach a better sermon? Are you loving me and preaching me or, or loving me and pursuing me so that you could have a more anointed service? I'm just being vulnerable with you. And I've been, I came back from that Jesus Image Pastors Conference just weeping before the Lord. Lord, I'm sorry for this motive right here. And it's not a thing of like shame. It's a thing of this is hindering you from a deeper place with my presence. If you can overcome this, you can have more of me. And really that's, that's how we get the rewards. And in the book of Revelation, it says, if you overcome, if you overcome, if you overcome, you get these rewards. And so how Jesus defines greatness. Jesus defines a life of greatness as obeying his commands. So the question can be asked, if God is looking for, when I stand before him, a life of greatness is called obeying his word, obeying his commands, what is the first command? Or what is the greatest command? And Jesus spells this out for us. And we've all heard the scripture and really the, the more we hear one scripture, the more it just became, becomes repetitious to us and we get numb to it. So I want us to approach this scripture like we've never heard it before. I want us to empty our minds and all familiarity of everything we know about this scripture. Matthew 22, 
The context Jesus is speaking is the context of a wedding banquet. So in the same breath, he's talking about a wedding banquet, which is signifying he's talking about the last days. He's signifying eternity. And this is what he says, Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together in the same place and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. He said, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love. This is, this is it. If you're wondering what is God looking for? What kind of life is he looking for? What is he gonna, what, how is he gonna evaluate my life in the throne room? This is it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In the Passion Translation, he says, love the Lord your God with every passion of your heart, with all the energy of your being and with every thought that is within you. This is the great and supreme command. And so most of us, if you've read this scripture, most of us in the church, we read this more like a state of mind rather than a way of life. It's more of like, oh yeah, I love God. Yeah, I love him. Check, check off the box. Like, I did that. I did that command. And, and it's almost like we treat, we treat Jesus as like a vaccine. It's almost like we get a, a small enough dose of him to inoculate us from darkness. However, it numbs us from the fullness of what he's really wanting us to experience. So this, this commandment, this was not new to the Hebrew people whenever Jesus is saying this. This is not the first time this was said. The first time this commandment was introduced was when the, in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses gets the commandments and this commandment right here of loving the Lord was the centrality of everything the Israelites did. It revolved around this commandment. It, it's not like a, a a tier system. I like to see it more of like it's central and everything we do, our eating, our drinking is done with loving the Lord in mind. It's action. It's, it actually looks like something. Me being Emily's husband does not, is not an indication that I am living a life of loving her well, just the fact that we're married. So to love Emily well, I need to know what moves her heart. I need to know what her interests are, her priorities, her values, and I need to adjust my value system to her value system. That means it affects how I talk, it affects how I treat her, it affects how I treat people. It, it's a complete overhaul of my entire life. I wanna say loving the Lord is the same way. <laughs> loving the Lord is the same way. It requires a complete overhaul of our value system. It requires a complete overhaul of our time, of our energies, of our, what are we feeding our souls on? How we think is how we, how we love the Lord. How we spend our free time is how we love the Lord. The best way to love the Lord is being alone with him and just telling him, I love you, I love you, I love you. That is how we love the Lord. So uh, I told a few weeks ago, you know, many people, they, they say they want more, but their behavior is not matching it. And I told the story of um, when we were first married, I was asking Emily for, for a 
glass of water. I wanted her to get out of bed and get me a glass of water because I was too com comfortable and too complacent in my warm bed. <laughs> and, and the Lord was speaking to me and he said, you are thirsty enough to ask for water, but you are not thirsty enough to get up out of your comfort zone and get the water yourself. And the same thing happens so much in the body of Christ. We have the language of love, we have the language, but our hearts, our lives are not matching that language. And he is coming back for a bride where the language of the lips match the posture of our heart. It, you know, it alternates from night to night. It, it just depends, right? <laughs> Matthew 24, verse three. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and I love this, I love this imagery right here. Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, the same mountain where he's going to ascend up to heaven and the same mountain where he's gonna break the sky open and descend upon when he comes back. So he, he's, with that imagery, he was sitting there, to, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us when these things will happen and what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? He said this, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah and they will deceive many. So Jesus is saying in the last days, there will be a massive vacuum of voices of leadership in the last days. And there will be many voices that are rising up that are speaking for the Lord, but they are not speaking of the Lord. <laughs> Say that again, in the last days, there will be many voices speaking for God, but they are not speaking of God. They are not from God. How many of you can think of things? Oh yeah, I know that person, that person, that person. Um, but Jesus is saying that right here. He said, because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered. In the Passion Translation, it says, there will be such an increase of sin and lawlessness in those days that those whose hearts once burned with passion for God and others will grow cold. So it's amazing to me that we don't have to guess what the main thing we need to be diligent about and concerned about when we stand before God. The main thing that Jesus is saying, the supreme action that we need to be most intentional with in the last days, not defined by Tanner, not defined by a denomination, but defined by Jesus himself is this. Keep a heart that is vibrant, that is passionate, that is deeply in love with the lamb, Jesus himself. That, my friends, is success. That, my friends, is success. When I say loving Jesus is life's greatest achievement. Having a heart that is burning for him, that sheds a tear when you say his name, is more successful to God than preaching in a stadium. That's not how I evaluate success, that's how he evaluates success. That is heaven's gold standard for a successful life. So uh, I wanna take just the rest of this time, I wanna give, if cultivating a vibrant heart is the most, uh, the highest priority of heaven, I wanna give us three keys of how to cultivate that vibrant heart today. I, I like to be practical. I like to give practical things of what's worked in my life. And um, I wanna give those to you today. Three keys of cultivating a vibrant heart in the last days before we stand before Jesus. First, first one is this, to cultivate, cultivate, <laughs> cultivate a vibrant heart 
You must steward a life of sacrifice by digging a well of intimacy. I'll say it again. To cultivate a vibrant heart, you must steward a life of sacrifice by digging a well of intimacy. I shared this at the beginning of the year, this story when we were talking about prayer. Um, I heard this story of a pastor who lived out in the country. He pastored a smaller church and um, in the morning he liked to take uh, hot showers. And the thing is his house was older and his water heater was on um, the opposite side of the house where his shower was on. And so um, he would get up in the morning, it would take so long, he would turn the hot faucet on, it would take so long for the hot water to get from one end of the house to another. So what he did was before he would go to bed at night, he would turn the hot water faucet on to where it's just dripping, just a trickle. So when he woke up in the morning, he had instant hot water. He didn't have to wait to warm up. He didn't have to wait. And I say all that to say, when we are going after God, we never know when we are going to need that instantaneous hot water of intimacy with him. And I wanna say the day is approaching where we can afford to take the time to warm ourselves up, where we need to have that hot water, that affection dripping for the Lord at all times. We never know when that bill will hit. We never know when the medical thing will hit. We need instant hot water. That's what he says when he's saying, be instant in season and out. We need that instantaneous. I know how to channel the throne room right now. I have a one-way a one-way speed dial to the throne room of heaven right now through my worship, through my adoration. You never know. Have you ever been in a season where you just kind of had, have been a little off with the Lord? You weren't really reading scripture. You just kind of got dull. You're just kind of like, I'm good. And then something hits out of nowhere, an attack. And you're like, I need, I need a well of intimacy to draw on. And then you're kind of like playing catch up for a few days to kind of get your soul back on track. And I wanna say, don't wait until you need the fire of God to access the fire of God. <laughs> don't wait until you need his presence to begin accessing his presence. You know, I've been, I've been honored to be in ministry my whole life. And I, I love reading about, like I said, God's generals who, who preach in stadiums and do amazing things for God. And every single person I've read about always reaches a day where they get old, they retire, the stadium's invitations stop coming, they stop traveling, the books stop coming, and they are left with just them and their intimacy with Jesus. And I'm just saying ministry because that's just my sphere of influence, but this goes for everybody. Like one day the business, you're gonna retire. One day the business will end. One day the kids will move out. And Everyone in this room will be faced with this one question, what well are you drinking from? All those days, was, was the job what you were drinking from? Was the platform feeding your soul? Was the crowds, was it the stadiums, was it the invitations? What was the well that you were really drinking from? And sadly, that's when we see many people go into midlife crisis and, and just ministers spin out because they waited until they were 70 or 80 years old to start digging a well with the Lord. 
I wanna say if you hear anything this morning, do not wait until you're 70, 80, or 90 years old to begin digging a well of intimacy with God. Start now. Start digging that well now. You never know when you're gonna need that hot water. You never know. I believe digging a well of intimacy with Jesus cannot be done outside of the place of sacrifice. Sacrifice. Um, I remember about three years ago, many of you heard this story. Uh, three years ago, I had this crazy like demonic attack on my life. I, I was not sleeping at all for about two months. Um, it, it wasn't like I just had bad nights of sleep. It was like I maybe slept for 30 minutes each week in a two month span. It was the most awful thing I had experienced. And at that time, my heart was just kind of, kind of I don't wanna say dull, but I just stopped laying myself on the, on the altar of sacrifice. I, I, I kind of reached this point where it's like, I don't know where to go from here. And so I started having this crazy demonic attack um, that was just in my face every day. And so I got up out of bed one morning, didn't sleep. And I did one of those things where you just throw your Bible down on the floor and see what verse opens up. How many of you have done that before? I don't recommend doing that as your like regular devotional time. Just, it may not work every time, <laughs> but this time it worked for me. And so the, the scripture that came up was Genesis 26, 18. If we could turn in our Bibles there. <clears throat> Genesis 26, I wanna start in verse 12. Isaac sowed seed in that land. And in that year, he reaped a hundred times what was sown. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and kept getting richer until he was very wealthy. He had flocks of sheep, herds of cattle, and the Philistines were envious of him. The Philistines stopped up all the wells that his father Abraham had dug. I wanna say that again. The Philistines, the enemy army stopped up all the wells. What do wells signify? It signifies a drinking place from the Lord, a place where we are fed, a place where we're, we're nourished and refreshed. That his father Abraham had dug. Digging signifies sacrifice, filling them with dirt. So Isaac reopened the water wells that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham and that the Philistines had stopped up. So just, just some context of what's happening here. So Abraham's generation, they give blood, sweat, and tears, sacrifice to digging these wells that not only the leaders drink from, but the entire nation drinks from these wells. They, they've gave, they've plowed blood, sweat, and tears. At one point, I don't know which generation, I don't know if it was Abraham's or if it was Isaac's, but at one point, someone got very complacent and stopped keeping up and tending the well. They stopped laying their lives on the altar. They stopped giving sacrifice, blood, sweat, and tears. And the enemy armies, the Philistines, came and actually stopped up and clogged up a well that was once a place of, to drink and get refreshed from one generation. So Isaac had to go back and redig the wells. And what the Lord told me in this season, very, very specifically, is that, is that the enemy will always inhabit territory where there is an absence of sacrifice. I wanna say that again. The enemy will always take territory in your life 
where there is an absence of sacrificial worship, of sacrifice, of laying your life down on the altar. And so I, I began, I just like cleared my schedule for two weeks and said, I am going to fight this and beat this. So I began just getting my grit back in the place of prayer. I began just saying, Lord, I need you. I've been, I've been distant with you. I need you. I began getting that grit back. And within a couple weeks, I slept like a baby and never experienced that again. Never experienced it again. Sacrifice. It's about sacrifice. That's why I believe David's wife, Michael, whenever David was dancing before the ark of God, Michael was watching from her window, watching from a distance. And when David came back up to his wife, she criticized his worship. She criticized his extravagance. And scripture says the very next thing that happened was she was barren the rest of her life. What is the Bible telling us? That, that the absence of sacrificial praise and worship will always create place for the enemy to give barrenness to. The absence of sacrificial praise and worship. The moment that sacrifice leaves the altar, the fire goes with it. I just wanna say, stay on the altar. Stay on the altar. Whatever that looks like to you, whatever the Holy Spirit's giving to you, stay on the altar. Stay in the place of sacrifice. Stay there. Second thing I, I wanna share, cultivating a vibrant heart demands a life lived in humility. I said last month that if you were to ask me what I believe uh, as a youth pastor, one of the greatest plagues attacking our youth, I would tell you, I believe it's the plague of entitlement that is attacking this generation. This is the most me-centered generation I don't think we've ever lived in. It's, it's me, it's, it's all about this right here. It's selfie generation, that's what it is. And James 3.16 says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. I wanna suggest pride and entitlement are the greatest repellents to the presence of Jesus. So, but if, if, if pride and entitlement are the greatest repellents, how much more is thanksgiving, is meekness, is lowliness attract the presence of God in our lives? How much more does that attract him? I wanna... I wanna, yeah, I wanna go to Isaiah. Let's go ahead and go to Isaiah. I wanna really take a deep dive into the origins of pride, okay? Because I feel like sometimes you can't, you can't really uh, purge something out of a culture unless you really understand how it got started and how it was originated. But uh, it's my opinion that pride and arrogance are some of the most widely accepted sins in the body of Christ. It's, it's just widely accepted. And really, it, pride is not a small deal. It's, it's an obstruction in our vision. It obstructs our vision. The blood of Jesus, Jesus has done everything he could to get me to you and you to him. However, we live in the first heaven right here where we can have pride and arrogance obstruct our view from him. And so I wanna take us a little deeper. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 14. It says, when the Lord gives you rest from your pain, torment, and the hard labor you were forced to do, you will sing this song of contempt about the king of Babylon. So a little Bible, Bible history. So Isaiah right here, 
there's two interpretations of this. The first one, the king of Babylon he's referring to is the specific king at that time, Nebuchadnezzar. So what he's saying, he's giving this prophecy of to Israel. One day you will be delivered from the king of Babylon. You will be back to the, the promised land and you will rejoice and you'll sing this song, which is true. But a broader view, a broader reading of this scripture, the king of Babylon he is referring to is the devil himself. And so Isaiah is really giving us an insight into what our song, what our rejoicing will be like that day that the devil is completely cast out into the lake of fire. He's saying, this is the song we will sing. How the oppressor has quieted down. Just take that in. That, that, that constant like voice in, in your head that, that's constantly accusing you, no more. How it has quieted down. How the raging has become quiet. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. It struck the people in anger with unceasing blows. It subdued the nations in rage. Are the nations in rage right now? Let's say yes. <laughs> with relentless persecution. But now all the earth is calm and at rest. Drop down to verse 12. Shining morning star. So that word shining morning star is a direct translation to Lucifer. He was heaven's lead worship leader in the throne room. He was known as, as the one that brought praises, brought, that brought worship to the Lord. So now Isaiah is literally speaking about Lucifer himself, shining morning star. How you have fallen from the heaven. So he's talking about how Satan was cast out of heaven. You destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, so hear this language right here. This is the very language that got Satan thrown out of heaven in the first place. This is it right here. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly. How many of you hear of uh, repetition right here? I will, I will, I will. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north, meaning the highest place. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And this is Jesus's response. Um, I, I say it's Jesus's response. This was the prophet writing. I believe it was Jesus through the prophet. But you will be brought down to Sheol <laughs> into the deepest regions of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you. They will look closely at you and say this, is this the man who caused the earth to tremble? In other words, we're gonna say on that day, it was you <laughs> that this whole time, that's all it was, it was, it, it was you. This is the one who caused the earth to tremble. This is the one who spread sickness, disease, and cancer. This is the one, how small he is. <laughs> this is the one who turned the world into a wilderness and trampled its cities. I just want, I say all that, I wanna say, I refuse to be impressed with Satan. If I am not going to be impressed with the devil on that side of eternity, I refuse to be impressed with him on this side of eternity. I refuse. If that's how we're gonna see him then in eternity in the throne room, why not see him like that now? Oh, it's you. Oh, it's just you like Smith Wigglesworth said. Oh, it's just you. Please notice though, the words that are the heartbeat of the devil himself, I will. I will, 
I will, I will go high. I will make a name for myself. And mirror that, contrast that to the words of Jesus who said, my father, my father, my father. That is the heartbeat of meekness. That is the heartbeat of humility. The devil went high, but Jesus went low. I wanna say that is true greatness in the kingdom of God. You might feel like I need to defend myself right now. I need to, this person is attacking me. I need to, no, go low. What did Jesus do? Go low. He stayed small. He went low. He, he, he stayed small. I realized any achievement I gain in my own strength will have to be sustained in my own strength. <laughs> but anything the Lord gives me, where he promotes me, he will sustain that thing. I won't have to work at it. I won't have to work. I won't have to work. So, so my point, my, I read all this to, to say this, just please hear me. To partner with the devil, I don't necessarily have to play with the Ouija board or play with tarot cards, although those are obviously demonic. <laughs> all I have to do is take my ministry, take my family, take my life and make it all about me. Pride, that's how deep of an issue this is here. That's how deep of an issue. As Pastor David says, I'm gonna meddle now. Is that okay if I meddle a little bit? <laughs> I, I, I can't tell you how many just heartbreaking stories I've heard of um, youth pastors and associate pastors who leave their assignments prematurely and start their own thing and take half a congregation with them just because they can't handle not being the guy in charge. And... and and I say that with love and fear and trembling and, and, and all that, but, but that, that is the heartbeat of Lucifer. I know that's heavy, that's a lot. William McDowell, we've quoted him a lot saying, you are, I'm gonna butcher the quote, but he said something along the lines of, you are not more like Lucifer than when you were on a stage making it all about you. <laughs> and we're not perfect, nobody's perfect. We're, I'm not saying you have to live life completely perfect, but as long as I get up every day and say, I, I'm making progress, I'm gonna set my heart on loving the Lord. Oh, maybe pride slips and I fall, get back up. I'm gonna seek the Lord again. Lord, purge this pride from my heart. Maybe I slip up and fall, I keep going. The, the point is keep working at it, keep going, keep working at it. You may say, I have pride in my heart. Okay, don't stay there, keep pursuing his face. We become like the one we behold. The more you behold him, the less pride you're going to have in your, in, your, in your life. I shared this at Pastor David's birthday party last week, but what, what struck me the most when I first met Pastor Dave Nicole, um, when, when I went to, to drive Pastor David to a speaking engagement, I tried to grab his bag from him and open his door and try to try to honor him. And there is a place for honor. There is a place for that. But what he was saying is, why are you trying to get my bag? Just be my friend. And that's just the personality of Pastor David. I love that. But I felt like what he was really teaching me, um, maybe even unintentionally, was it's not about me. <laughs> it's not about me. It's not about my bag and opening my door. Yeah, there's a place for honor and all that. But it's not about that. It's about him. It's about Jesus. It's about him. We need to learn to lead with the heart of a servant and serve with the heart of a king. I wanna say that again. Lead with the heart of a servant and serve with the heart of a king. That's the Christian life. Last thing I'll close, I'll close right here. To cultivate a vibrant heart, 
We must stay committed to the simplicity of first love. I'll say that again. To cultivate a vibrant heart, we must stay committed to the simplicity of first love. Matthew 6, 19, he said, don't collect for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasure in heaven. What is he saying? Live for the throne room. (laughs) Build, buy gold from him in the prayer closet. Steward oil, get oil from him in the place of prayer. It won't decay. My prayer life is the, really the only thing that I'll be able to take with me to eternity. There, there's, there's other things, but I just wanna say my prayer life, my oil with God, my intimacy with him will survive this, this age and the age to come. It, so invest there, invest there more than you invest in anything else. I'm not saying don't invest in other places, invest your time, in, but make this number one, make this priority, make everything else second, make everything else peripheral. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy or if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. What I believe Jesus is saying here is to be effective in this age and the age to come is this, simplify the eye of your heart. If your eye is set on one thing, one reason for being alive, every area of your heart will be lit up with the light of God. It'll affect everything. It's the one thing that takes care of everything. If your eye is set on one thing for being alive, it will affect everything. I've learned it's one thing to have a busy life, but it's another thing to have a busy heart. I can't necessarily control a busy life. I can in some some ways, but I can control the busyness of my heart, okay? It's not about how much is going on here. Life has been really busy this year. Thank God he blessed us with the church. Thank God we have, there's been more work to do. It's been been more stuff. It's just been another opportunity for me to say, Lord, my heart is set on one thing. You are the reward of my heart. You are the reward. It's not my activity. It's not doing, doing, doing. It's you. You are the reward. My heart isn't busy. My heart isn't busy. It's one thing to have a busy life. It's another to have a busy heart. I share this quote a lot, Reinhard Bonnke, the great evangelist who went to be with the Lord recently. He was sitting in a service um, one day and he, he had this pastor, this very well-known pastor in front of him. And during worship, the pastor began repenting of just all this, all this sin that, that Reinhard Bonnke just thought, oh my gosh, I never thought this man could, could have this much sin in his life. And Reinhard Bonnke prayed this prayer to God in that moment. He said, Lord, Teach me to mind now what will matter in the end. Teach me to mind now what will matter when I stand before you in eternity. We're living for one moment, guys. One one day, one moment, one moment that we're standing before him. Um, I remember we took the youth, the youth boys to this, uh, this gym called Ninja Nation. Where's James Gross? Is James here? Well, I saw him here earlier. He, he's in kids, gotcha. He, uh, he used to work there at that gym. Um, if you've any, anybody watched American Ninja Warrior, that show, um, that's pretty much the gym they train at. And um, 
when I was there, I did one of the activities. I'm, I'm obviously not the most athletic guy in the room. I know that already. Um, <laughs> but one of the activities I did was what they call the slack line, which pretty much it was just this, this long rope from here, uh, maybe to that last candle. And you had to balance yourself and go, try to walk across the slack line with, uh, without falling off. And so I got up on the slack line and naturally, I don't know why, I kept my eyes on my feet naturally because you don't wanna fall. I would take two steps and fall off. <laughs> two more steps and fall off. Another two steps and fall off. And then James, he's a trainer there. He came up to me and said, if you keep your eyes on where you wanna end up, <laughs> it's gonna change your entire trajectory. And so I, I did it. I kept my eyes on the very end on where I wanna end up, and I went faster, farther than I ever thought I would go. What, what's the implication? What's the implication? When we keep our eyes in our focus on that one day we will be with the Lord, on one thing, it will change everything. We will go faster. We'll get more accomplished, I wanna say. It, it, it'll be more productive than anything we could do in our own flesh when we're just so consumed with ourselves and what's happening here. Keep your eyes, look up. As Jesus said, look up, look up, look, look to that day, look there. You'll go faster than you ever dreamed you would go. You can go ahead and help me out, Clay. Simplicity, I believe, is the front door to a life of intimacy. Simplicity is the front door to a life of intimacy. The church of Ephesus, we talk about that a lot. Uh, it, Paul wrote to the, the Ephesians church and the church of Ephesus it was started by Paul, the apostle, so planted by Paul. And then it was pastored by John the beloved, John the disciple, along with the help of Mary, mother of Jesus and Mary of Bethany, which was later pastored by Timothy, spiritual son of Paul. So if that is not a church launch team, I don't know what is. It's like, wow, that's, I want them on my team. You had Paul planted it, John the beloved who rests, Mary, the mother of Jesus was like, golly, that's a church plant right there if there ever was one. The word Ephesus means darling. So this was Jesus's, I would call darling church. This was his gold standard of churches. When Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians in the, in the New Testament, this was the only epistle or only letter he ever wrote that had zero corrections to it. Imagine that as a church where if Jesus could say anything to you, you have zero corrections, you're just, you're doing, you're not perfect, but for the most part, you're hitting the mark just one after another. Sadly, 60, 70, approximately years later, Jesus addresses the same church again in the book of Revelation through John the Beloved who once pastored this church. And he praises them. They're doing a lot of works for God. They're being used by Jesus a lot. A lot good is happening. But his rebuke is this. You lost the simplicity of the love you had when you first started. That standard you had, that the way you would shed a tear when you said my name, that isn't there anymore. That isn't there yet. Yeah, you're being used by me, but you're not in love with me. I wanna say it is very possible to be used by Jesus and not be in love with Jesus. It's very, very possible. And, and his, his 
invitation is come back, come do the things you did before. Do the things, the works of love you did before. I spent uh, most of my Christian life believing that the apex of Christianity or the pinnacle of Christianity, this is why I'm alive, was these three things. Number one, to get saved, which is true. I walked through the door of salvation. Number two was to serve in my church, which is great, amen, we need people serving. Number three was that God will use me. And those are incredible truths to our faith, but that isn't the end all be all, I wanna say. That isn't the pinnacle, that isn't the front door. It's like, God wants me so he can use me? That doesn't sound like a perfect father. Like, do I get to love him after he uses me? It's like, to be used, that's the, that's the pinnacle, just to be used? I wanna say there's deeper waters. There's deeper waters than being used. There's, there's a deeper place. There's, there's deeper water. There's more than that. Go beyond that. If anyone told you that was the end all be all, there's a whole nother universe waiting for you called the depths of knowing his heart. Being used of God, it's an honor, but it's not the ultimate end all be all. Balaam was used by God, but he was also used by the devil to try to curse Israel. Saul was used by God, but the Bible says he died as if he were never anointed. I didn't say that, the Bible says that. <laughs> he died as if he were never anointed. Judas was a part of the two by two that got sent out to raise the dead, heal the sick, perform miracles. He raised more dead people than anybody in this room probably, but he still denied Jesus. These people were used mightily, but their hearts were not tethered to knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus. I wanna to suggest to you, Jesus' ultimate goal isn't to merely use you, it is to marry you. We are his bride. It's more than just being used, it's being married. It's knowing the depths of his heart, it's burning with love for him. Yes, God is gonna use every single person in this room, I have no doubt about that, to do mighty exploits, to change the world, to, to serve the broken in the city, to, to heal the sick and raise the dead. God will use all of us to do that, and I pray he does. But if you take anything from today, I want you to be more intentional in cultivating a heart that loves him than you are trying to figure out your calling or your purpose and your destiny. David, King David, was Israel's greatest leader in the world, had, was the most used by God. And his, his ministry school or his leadership school, his seminar was really this, it was go find me in the field. <laughs> go find me in the shepherd's field. And then the guy who wants to, you're gonna take his place, he's gonna try and kill you one day. And then you're gonna go to a cave, try to find me in the cave. And then, because I could trust you finding me in the field, I trusted you finding me in the cave, I can trust you to find me when you take the throne and you're used by me. Just wanna say that, don't make a calling an idol, okay? Don't make your calling an idol. Make Jesus an idol, make Jesus your thing. When you fall deeply in love with him, you don't have to worry about a calling, that will come. Just fall in love with him and the calling will come. I mean, my life I'm living now, I couldn't read a book and figure this out. Like the fact that when I'm, right when Emily and I get married, 
Lord, what, what do you want me to do? I feel this stirring. What, what's the call? What's the plan? What's the plan? What's the purpose? Okay, quit your job, number one. What ministry school teaches you that? <laughs> Move across the country and sit at my feet for nine months and just love me. What? No, I need to do stuff. I applied for 20 jobs when I was in Reading. I got zero in return and I had a bachelor's degree. That did nothing for me. That did nothing for me. And then we leave, we leave Reading when I'm so broken. I'm like, Lord, where, where do you wanna take me? And then a couple named David and Nicole Binion embrace me and wrap their arms around me. That, and I find my calling, I find my purpose. What is the first, the first step? Fall in love with him. Follow his voice and the calling will come. The purpose will come. I couldn't figure this out on my best day. You could have told me 10 years ago I'd be in Dallas. I, I wouldn't have figured it out. But when you fall in love, you're not so much so consumed with orders and like, it's where's the bridegroom's whisper now? Where are you whispering at today? Where, where do I need to find you here? That is true success in the kingdom. King David led an entire nation from the place of love and that was enough. That was enough. In the throne room, Jesus will not refer to me as well done, good and faithful leader, or good and faithful prophet, or good and faithful youth pastor. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Being used by God does not ensure greatness and success in eternity, but being faithful to loving Jesus does ensure success. How do I wanna, how do I wanna live before the throne room? Live with the heart that is in love with him. Be more diligent. Be more intentional about cultivating a heart that burns than you are anything in life. I'm not saying don't spend time with your family or wife or kids, that, that, no, do that. But make Jesus number one, make Jesus number one. Last thing I wanna say, you know, there are no substitutes for intimacy with him. There are no substitutes with him. Um, Rita Springer, an amazing friend of this house, she wrote a well-known song I'm sure we've all heard of. Um, and the heartbeat is really just simplicity. It's, it's just simple. I just wanna read the lyrics. When there's no way out except through a miracle, when there's no way up a mountain except to climb it, when everything you've hoped for seems gone and every dream you've dreamed is so far away, that's when I say, all I need to do is worship. All I need to do is say his name out loud. All I need to do is lift my hands, surrender and bow down. This is my favorite part. All I need to do is find him, find him. I believe there are many of you in this room today that have come in here with so many challenges, so many issues. I, my heart breaks when I hear just some of the things you, you're going through, the, the medical issues you're believing God for, the, the lost children that you're praying come home. I came in here too with my own stuff I'm believing God for. And, and I could tell you all this application of an encouragement of what to do, but really, the thing you need to do most is this, it's to find his presence again. It's to find him. When you find him, there's no breakthrough big enough that he can't accomplish for us. <laughs> but when we spend all of our time trying to wear ourselves out, trying to get breakthrough, 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 he's just like, look at me, love me. I have more breakthrough than you could ever imagine. Talk about breakthrough, more breakthrough than you could ever imagine when you find the heart of Jesus. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.